Either Schweitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hi, Peter. We've got a great uh, lot of guests on today's program. We have, and some some really, really interesting revelations. I think particularly from Sue Mitchell, the CEO of um, Mortgage Choice. Uh, I'm... I'm hoping she's going to give us some good news on what's happening to lending, but oh, no, look, well, look you know, at some you know how I've been notes. a bit of a bull on the. Yeah, I became a bit bullish a few weeks ago on the home market, mm. mainly premised a little bit on uh, the market falling off a cliff in 2020, a bit with a change of government. But yeah. look, it'd be interesting to find out just what's happening out there because there have been some reports that uh, it's still pretty hard to get a loan. I thought maybe. Uh, because these APRA restrictions had been in place for some time, they they had started to ease up. So, be interesting to find out what Sue's got to say about uh, what the real state of the home loan market is at the moment. Yes, right. And we're also going to be talking to Dr. Ichak Adizis. He's the founder of the Adizis Institute worldwide, and yeah, you know, this is a guy who who has uh, been mentoring people like, you know, Jack Cowan of Hungry Jacks and a lot of the people who are on the Young Presidents Organisation, a really insightful guy. And as I say, some of the most well-known entrepreneurs in this country see him as, as their mentor. Well, he's all into, uh, as I understand it, Peter, as well, teams, the importance of getting the right team in place and mm. got some, uh, some, I think, some interesting ideas about how you spot good teams of, of executives. And yeah. it's very much about it's not the individual, it's about the team. That, yeah. uh, it's why some companies uh, succeed and others fail. So yeah. he's, uh, he's, got, he's been studying this very closely. He's quite a, I won't say he's radical, but he's certainly uh, very down to earth in terms of what he thinks yeah. leaders need to do and how they need to build the right sort of team behind themselves. Yeah, and it's funny when you think of a guy like Jack Cowan, you kind of see him as being a very independent individualist, you know, like you know, right and rough cowboy type mm. entrepreneur. But obviously he's learnt from uh, Dr. Azidis that uh, having a good team around you is very, very important. And then we will be talking to Nick um, Sash. He's a co-founder of Supple, an award-winning Melbourne-based tech company that empowers small and medium businesses by giving them visibility through the SEO, web, web design and blah, 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 which is really important, I think, in a lot of modern startup businesses nowadays. That's the show. So without any further ado, let's introduce Sue Mitchell, who is the CEO of Mortgage Choice. Sue, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Look, I think most people getting a chance to talk to someone like you at the coalface, the CEO of Mortgage Choice at the coalface, at a time when the industry has been challenged, you know, since APRA got heavy and the Royal Commission had serious implications on the business, what's lending like now? Is it getting any better for people who are going to your brokers and saying, get me a loan? No. Oh, really? No, it's not getting any better. Um, it still takes about 50% longer for an owner-occupied loan than it did 18 months ago. It's about twice as long for an investor loan. The um, amount of time from application to settlement's blown out by about 60%. Is that soon because the banks are just uh, looking much more closely at, at the applicant's income and their expenses? Well, why is it? 
I can understand, Lynn, it's hard. It might be hard. They might be saying more now often, but why is it the processing time taking longer? You know, it's funny. I'm going to step back just right. a second from that. I don't think that the the actual responsible lending has gotten harder. What's happened is, is that APRA has asked the banks not to make exceptions. So before, if they had 25 to 30 percent exceptions, now they can only have just a few. Yeah. So responsible lending is actually about the same. They're just making sure that everyone has to meet it. So that's the first reason. The second reason is you're correct. They're looking much deeper into the expenses. There's some crazy anecdotal stories about people not getting their loans because they have a, a hidden child or a hidden pet because they have expenses that make it look like they have a child, but they're buying a gift for a friend. But most of the queries are coming from deep dive into expenses and um, more review and more um, verification of all types of your income rather than just say your primary income. So Sue, if you get someone who, who's on high income, but they're really weird, you know, they might grow their own vegetables and they don't go out to restaurants, they might be non-drinkers, like how weird is that? Would they, would the alarms go off on them and say, oh, we don't believe what, what you're saying you're spending each week because that doesn't fit the profile of someone who's a foreign exchange dealer and a doctor? I think that that's probably true. Mm -hmm. The other thing that will actually happen in the serviceability calculator, you know, the calculator that they go through mm -hmm. and actually figure out how much excess income you have over your expenses, it will actually put you up to a benchmark if you are below it. Mm -hmm. So it's the higher of your actual expenses mm -hmm. and a benchmark. So you actually won't get credit for that frugal lifestyle, they'll bump you up mm. to a benchmark. Right. Now, do you see the situation improving? Is this something that we're just going to have to work through? The banks will get better at this, they'll uh, put delegations back in place, or is this, is it just, this is the way it's going to be? It's just going to be harder and more difficult to get a loan ad infinitum? I don't see the responsible lending criteria changing. What I do see is the introduction of automation that makes the aggregation of all the expenses and those sorts of pieces of the puzzle faster. Mm -hmm. So I see it speeding up. I don't see it necessarily changing the answer. The other thing that's interesting is a lot of the banks, because it's taking longer, they've had to put on new assessors. And some of those assessors are going above and beyond the credit criteria. So if they could just even bring some of those assess assessors back to the level of the credit policy that's actually in place, mm -hmm. that would be a great step forward. Yeah. Uh, are we also finding that, or a better question, non-bank lenders, are they governed by the same you know, laws around or rules around lending or can they just use the, the, the criteria they're always used? The responsible lending is the same and what's happened is APRA steps in and has enforced, as I said earlier, fewer exceptions and has been very clear about responsible lending, but that is also enshrined in regulation under ASIC and they are just reviewing the ASIC statement of responsible lending and that's supposed to be finished around about May or June. So I don't see that the non-banks have any different um, capabilities on responsible lending. Take a guess and be absolutely accurate. How, how, what percentage of loans aren't happening because of A, APRA's change of attitude a couple of years ago and the Royal Commission? It's interesting. Actually, um, one of our um, competitors actually did that analysis mm -hmm. and he said about 20% of the loans that were done before the Royal Commission probably would not be able to earn, to be able to borrow the same amount of money today mm. as they did when they originally did their application. Yeah. 
And so, so it's a real economic effect. It's not just a profit for your business and all your, your brokers. This is a, an economic problem. Pe people are, um, borrow, are able to borrow less. Mm. And so that's got to affect the house prices. Mm. A, a better question now is how, how bad was the lending? How many wrong borrowers got money before the Royal Commission, do you think? Oh, I, I don't know that I can... Well, is it 5% or 10% maybe? Well, or? if we just stick to the question earlier and you said 20% wouldn't have been able to borrow as yeah. much as they had been before, mm. then let's just say those 20%, mm. perhaps if they had been analysed more carefully, mm. but would were, not have gotten were, through the same they, amount. Were they really bad borrowers who no. wouldn't have back their life? That's the bottom line. Look at the arrears. Yeah. The arrears has not gone up. Yeah. So the arrears rate's not gone up. So I think what happens is people just don't know how much money they spend. And when you ask them, they yeah. say, oh, this is probably about right. Mm. Or I think these are all my credit cards. Or I haven't used that one in forever. So I'm sure you don't mean my David Jones credit card because I haven't used that in 10 years. Yeah. So I think people just aren't that careful about putting everything in. S Susan, I've been articulating a theory that I thought the home market was close to bottoming mm. and uh, mm. we might all see a bit of an uplift this year. And part of that was to do with the election and some of the change in policies, and which I think will cause a bit of a cliff into t 2020. But putting that to one side, let's mm. talk about the politics of what's going on and uh, potentially a change of government in May. What do you think that may or may not do for the home market as we look, look forward? Well, I think if I go with a, a liberal win first, because I think mm -hmm. that's probably an easier answer. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, they don't seem to have any policies that are specifically targeted at the, the lending market, the home loan mm -hmm. market. So I would suspect with them, we just have to wait for the, the property change to, mm -hmm. to run its course. Yeah. If I go to the labor election, you've got several changes that they want to bring in at one time. Change in broker commission structure, mm -hmm. which might affect the access to funds from the consumer. Negative gearing changes, um, and they're stating that they want to do it, you know, in like six or seven months' time, which is yeah, very soon. Yeah. yeah, 1 January 2020, which is incredibly soon. Changing the capital gains structure and reducing the amount of capital gains. And then to do that all on top of a property market that's correcting, from responsible lending, it's very hard to actually be able to figure out what the result of all those things happening at one time is actually going to be. But, you, but you, it's got to be down. That's right. Mm. You have a <laughs> sense of fear in the, that explanation, have, so you're a little bit scared. Yeah, you, I think it's you're down. Your business relies on the Yes, we are. I, I think it's down, but I think there might be a little, but I think the down is in 2020. No, yeah. it might be a blip. Yeah. might be a blip up this I year. I agree. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. but you're right. I mean, but the, the funny thing, Paul, is that as Susan explained, even though there might be a, a, an enormous rush to buy stocks and property before January 1 to cash in on the 50% capital gains yes. discount, they might not get the money. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah. The, now, the other thing God, that might change that. is all these things going on, there's talk about whether or not there's another rate change yep. from the RBA. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, that actually won't change the amount of money you can borrow. Mm. Because the rates that are used in those calculators that I just talked about, they're floored. Uh. There's an amount of money it cannot be below. So changing the rate won't change the amount you can borrow. It might make it cheaper, mm. but it's not actually going to change It might improve service serviceability tests? No, because there's a, a, a floor, 7.25. Right. Oh, okay. So they the use right. that straight rate. Yep. So, and you can use more than that, but you can't go below. <laughs> okay. So I, didn't, I hadn't appreciated the 7.2% yeah. 7. Yeah. 7.2, yeah. Right. Okay. Mm. Well, 
that's something to factor in your calculations. And, and that's where they basically assess your ability to repay at that interest rate, not at the current interest rate of That's correct. So 7.2 would like the worst case scenario for, yeah. for a family. But that's ridiculous. Where we are now, like, worst case would be more like four and a half, five, not, maybe six. But 7.2 is like, that's old world stuff, really, isn't it? Actually, it's not that old world. It's only been in there for about 18 months to two years. So, <laughs> oh, Crazy stuff. All right, Sue, um, your business, how's it going with all those problems? Well, there's been a, a um, when we gave our results in February, there was a lot of uncertainty. Mm. But actually, some of that uncertainty has, has left. There's no more of the specter of um, consumer pays for broker commissions, mm -hmm. which would have been devastating mm -hmm. to our business. Um, you've had the Liberal Party back off on what it is that they would change. You're getting a little more guidance from what Labor might do. So some of that uncertainty has come off. Um, the reality is that the property market will run its course. Mm. Brokers are at a historically high usage. Interest rates are at a historic low. Mm. Employment's great. I just think the fundamentals aren't really quite as bad as everyone keeps saying. Yeah. Now, I realize the property value changes have got to run their course because that's 12 well and truly started so mm. it has to run its course mm. but i guess the the important question for me to you is what's the inquiry rate like we know the 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 computer is saying no but is the inquiry rate for loans getting better because that would be a sign that people are starting to feel better about house prices and their own position well, I think the applications are down. Hmm. Applications are, to are down about 10% in this quarter ending 30 March hmm. compared to the quarter that we just had 31st December. Now, some of that mm -hmm. is seasonal adjustment, but we have just had the lowest quarter for like about six years okay. of applications. So the inquiry is down. Okay, so on, on that criteria, the bottom process could be a little bit further off than I had. I think. I would say that. Well, I might put my bullish scenario just a little bit back in the drawer on the back of that. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah. maybe, I still maybe, think there's a cliff coming. So We might have to kill this interview with Sue. We didn't want to hear that information. <laughs> so everything was good until then. But still, this is why we, we, we do talk to people like you. You are close to the coalface. Um, all right, one last thing. Um, in terms of um, the, the whole industry, the, the finance industry, is it going to change a lot if a Labor government gets in power? I think it's going to, mm. because it, they seem to be determined to go through some of the Royal Commission recommendations mm. to their letter and implement them. Mm. And I feel like they should be taking more of a, uh, what is the intent, mm. and then what is a rational, what rational policy can I actually yeah. run off of that intent, rather than strictly interpreting directly from what the recommendation is to the law. Mm. Um, for instance, with broker, I mean, broker I'm the most familiar with, but you're talking about a very competitive home loan market where they're going to now jump in and regulate one piece of that mm. by stating how much a broker must be paid. I'm not quite sure what that does to a huge market mm. that reflects very, very, you know, actively <coughs> to market influences and market forces to go in and just pick one piece and then regulate it. So, or, or state what a broker can earn. That just, you know, I'm not quite sure how that all rolls out. So, mm. just as an example there, mm. but there will be other examples. I'm not quite sure what will be happening with as the banks start to let their planners move I mean, on. That'll change. I mean, obviously, I mean, when trouble when you put uh, lawyers in charge of coming up with uh, ideas, they're good at inquiry, but they're yeah. not good with fixing things. And 
I think the uh, Commissioner demonstrated that with his recommendation on broker commissions and the idea that the consumer was suddenly going to pay was all based on, I think it was Sweden was the country they went no, to? No, no, uh, um, Denmark. Denmark. But what they forgot no, to say was it's tax deductible. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and, right. and so That's they wrote right. this idea, this whole paper about it saying, look, the consumer will pay. Anyone in financial services in Australia knows consumers hate paying up front. Mm. Right? That's why commissions have existed. That's yeah. been the history of commissions. Gave us the example from offshore, but missed the key point about a huge tax deduction. I know. And so that's that was a. There's a whole lot of things in the uh, in the commission, which is uh, I think a lesson about. Uh, let's get lawyers to go to make inquiries, not yeah. come up with the, the way to fix things. Another example of fake news in the modern yep. world. For and one final final question, Sue is, there's a white paper there which I didn't ask you about, and I really do. Tell us what you found. Okay, Mortgage Choice regularly does a survey. So we survey a thousand people across Australia, across many age groups, and we ask them questions. Mm -hmm. And we had some very, very interesting findings come out of it. Um, mostly we were talking about savings and um, what sorts of things do you spend your money on? And the surprising things were, is that 18% of the respondents don't save at all, mm -hmm. and 8% live beyond their means. So that's 26% with no savings. Two and five are embarrassed by the level of debt that they have. One third hide the level of their indebtedness. And 25% are not sure at all what they would do if they were unemployed for three months. Mm -hmm. Now we also had some very interesting findings about what it was that people did spend their money on. And we found that 35% of the people were more interested in keeping up appearances than they were spending money on, say, health insurance dental care, property investments. And we found that there was a break where more women were concerned about this than men. Um, we also found that when you go to the millennial age group, about 50% of the group are more concerned about keeping up appearances than um, it, starting some investment plans. So, which is a little bit frightening when you think about what you see on Instagram and Facebook and it makes it look very, very simple and easy and everyone must be more successful than I am. I've got to keep up. Mm, so, yeah. so if people want to, I find it quite fascinating, quite scary really. It is. But if people want to access this um, white paper, can they do it? I think, I think we've got it available. On the mortgage. I, I, I don't, I don't I know if it's on our website yet. Yeah, I catch CEOs out all the time on this. I, I once caught Ron Walker out, and Ron's deceased now, unfortunately, but he was the boss of the Melbourne uh, Commonwealth Games, and I asked him what the website was. He looked at me and said, gee, I wish you hadn't asked me that question. We, we've done several press releases. Yeah. There's a lot of information oh, out in the market on it, yeah. but um, it was just some very, very interesting results and some of them a little bit disturbing. Yeah, without a doubt. So the most important thing really is to start to, is to save, mm -hmm. pay off your debts, yeah. working up to saving, pay attention to what you're spending your money on in detail mm -hmm. and maybe considering if using a, a program to track your spending yeah. or as you progress on a bit, maybe taking some advice. Yeah, well, my advice will be to buy my new book coming out soon called Join the Rich Club. Sue, thanks for joining us on the program. You're welcome. And I must remind you, uh, coming up next week in Brisbane and Melbourne are the Switzer Strategy Days. They're on 
Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. We still have some seats left, so make sure if you want to hear from some of the best fund managers in the country on how they're investing going forward and how they will respond to the changing political environment both here in Australia and overseas, well, you just have to come along to those strategy days. So if you are interested, just head to switzerevents.com.au. Right, joining us now is Dr. Ichak Azizis, who's the founder of the Azizis Institute Worldwide. As I said earlier, he's been one of the, the, the most important influences on some of the greatest entrepreneurs in this country, including people like you know, Jack Cowan of Hungry Jacks, the Gandell family, all these sorts of people. Lots of people I know who've been great Aussie entrepreneurs. They've been members of an international group called the Young Presidents Organization, or YPO. And uh, uh, ICHAC has been regarded as one of the great mentors for the large group of entrepreneurs worldwide that have come out of that group. So, Dr. ICHAC Adizis, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Ichak, the first question I have to ask you is this. How do you become an advisor to the rich listers of the world? How did you do it? I'm not chasing them. I was not chasing anybody. I was not selling myself. I just wrote my books based on what I understood makes sense. And then I lectured about my books. And people came to me after my lecture, and said, you understand us. Now, what is the difference between my lectures and my books? And I would say most books written, not most, many books. My, my, my methodology is based on real experience in the field, A, number one. So it's not based on some theory, some questionnaire, or some interview of executives and summarizing the findings of the interviews. I have gone, I left my university position, my lifetime appointment at the leading university in the United States to really see what the real world looks like. And I failed a lot. I was trying to, tell, to do what I was teaching, and then I found out that what I was teaching was not working mm. in reality, specifically. I want to tell you specifically. All the business schools that I know, and I know many of them because I've Twenty honorary doctorates from many business schools. Teach how to decide, how to make good decisions in finance, good decisions in marketing, good decisions in human resources. Not one course how to implement decisions. That's why many decisions do not get implemented well. And the real secret of success is in the implementation. What is the worth of making a value, making an incredible decision? $10 million to McKinsey for an incredible strategic plan you don't implement or implement badly. I'm claiming that it's better to have a mediocre decision, uh, more or less, that you implement well, then you have an incredible decision you don't implement well. So I, my, my own methodology was based on experience, 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 and learning from my failures. Learning my, from my failures until I found out the secret of success, until I found out how to do it right, and I tested it by teaching 100 associates around the world how to do it, certifying them with the longest certification process you can imagine. First, you take a course, then you have to pass the exam, then you have to do supervised internship, then you have to do supervised residency, then you have to take an examination to be certified. It's at least a three-year process to be a real certified that Jesus 
person. But now we have tremendous success, not just me, but my associates, which means that what they developed makes sense. So, so that's how we did it. So, Ichak, so when you left academia to go out in the field to encounter the experiences that became, uh, in a sense, your great life lessons, did you ha- actually have your own money you know, out there risking your money, learning from the mistakes, and then benefiting from when you got it right? Well, um, look, Peter, luckily for me, I'm a very good speaker. <laughs> hmm. I'm not just a consultant, but a very good speaker. I just, last year I was, I was elected, elected, I was selected, whatever is the word, among the Voted. top speakers in the world, you know, together with the Dalai Lama and the Pope. So when I left the university, I was invited to lecture, especially by YPO. YPO was my biggest client, all yeah. the chapters around the world, and they paid a lot of money for me to lecture, so I was not poor. So mm-hmm. while I was developing my practice, I was living on my lectures. So it was, I, was, I was doing well. I, I, I spoke to almost all the YPO chapters in the world, and YPO, I assume you know what YPO is. Yes, definitely. You know, I then I then I consulted the YPO. I had three presidents of YPO becoming my clients, among them Jack Cohen, which is an Australian. You know, Jack Cohen, I assume, is the owner of Domino Pizza and Burger King in Australia. He was my client. Yeah. And Ellen Bond was my client for a while. So because my lectures, um, I, I had enough to live on. And then I was developing the methodology and started getting paid very well for the success we made to companies, especially when I started getting stock options for my consulting. So that was very, very, very well remunerated. I so, was never hungry. I can tell you that. So, Dr. Azidi, you say your uh, the secret of success is about implementation. So is, is the methodology, uh, the Azidi's methodology for organizational transformation, is that essentially around, uh, around implementation and what you do in, in that sort of process? No, it's also about decision-making. Look, I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. There is a difference. I will do it very fast. We are all experiencing rapid change, which has never been experienced like this in the history of mankind. Change has been here forever from the Big Bang. But now it is rapid, which has never been as rapid as it is now. Because change is rapid, the problems that are created by change are also attacking us at a highest rate and frequency than ever before. If our grandparents were poor and happy, we are relatively rich and miserable. Why? We have to make strategic decisions in such a frequency that is reflected in what's called stress. And why is it stressful? Because when you make decisions in time of change, there is a lot of uncertainty. Now, when you implement a decision, there is a lot of risk. So how do you reduce uncertainty? And how do you reduce risk? Whoever knows how to do that will be more successful than a company that doesn't know how to do that. But this methodology is how to reduce uncertainty and how to reduce risk. How do you reduce uncertainty? If you have a complementary team People working in the company with different styles. I'm not talking about different knowledge. I'm talking about different styles. 
One is entrepreneurial and has a great ideas and sees the horizon and is, in, you know, impatient. The other is, uh, oh, here is an analogy I use. What is a good car? You need to have a good steering wheel to deal with change so you can make the turns. You need to have a very good engine so it moves forward at a good speed. And you need to have good brakes or you will hit the wall. When you have a company that has a complementary team, the entrepreneurial type, which is the steering wheel, the P type, the producer type, let's do something, stop talking, let's do. And you have very good bureaucrats who is a brakes and says, oh, hold a second, guys. What the hell are we doing? We're jumping over the hill. Then I think we reduce uncertainty because everybody contributes something that the other guy does not see. Mm-hmm. We, co- we complement each other. Now, how do you reduce risk? If the people whose collaboration, whose cooperation you need, cooperate. If they don't cooperate, your implementation will be bad and the risk will be very, very high. How do you bring that down? You have to make them want to cooperate. And how do you do that? There must be common interest. Now the problem is, there is no common interest over time. Interests change and that's normal. That means there's going to be conflict. And because there are different styles, there's going to be conflict, like in a marriage. Mm-hmm. So what do we do in order to avoid destructive conflict? But these are methodologies how to build a class, a culture of mutual trust and respect. So uh, when there is mutual respect. Yep. Go ahead. Well, I, I check. Go ahead. Continue, continue. So when there is mutual respect, we learn from each other, thus we make better decisions. Hmm. When so, it's mutual trust, we cooperate although we don't have a common interest because we believe in each other that it will be a wash of the time. Hmm. So that these are methodologies, how to build a culture of mutual trust and respect, which reduces uncertainty, reduces hmm. risk, so the companies manage better in time of change. So I check which that- is not what is being taught at university. Universities do not teach teamwork. Hmm. University teach individuals to make better decisions, and they're a pain in the ass. Mm. <laughs> but, but I, Jack, can I ask you this question? Looking at the history of the way that you've impacted various organisations, and let's just take, for example, Jack Cowan's organisations, it seems to me the first point of contact was between you and him. Your influence and your methodologies influenced Jack, and then Jack would have taken it back to his team to build up the, the, the cooperation. So is this the process through which your yes. methodology yeah. worked, that you no, have to influence the leader cases, first? Yeah, look, look. Most desirably is to have the cooperation of the CEO. But sometimes the CEO is too far away especially when you work in Russia. They are not even reachable. You don't know where they are. Maybe they are already in London or something. So you work with a division. What we need is the top of the unit that we are working with. Mm. So if I don't don't have the CEO, then we don't work with the company. Who is willing then? Maybe the head of the production of a plant. Then we work only with the plant. We always have to have the head of the unit in the process. We cannot work on part of the body without the head. But it doesn't have to be the whole company. 
It could be the marketing department. It could be the accounting department. It could be the plant. Nothing, as long as the head of the unit is willing to be there. And, and Doctor, um, how does uh, sort of your methodology work with startups where obviously you've got a fairly, you've found a lead and in some cases it takes a while for the team to develop? Oh, yeah, how do you... Yeah. Well, uh, I work with some startups. And what I, an election to associations for some startups, I said, guys, the danger is that the startup is started by some genius, full with ideas, new technology, all excited, but if it doesn't have a complementary team, very high probability it will fail. Usually, startup are started by entrepreneurial type. Mm-hmm. that has a dream, especially maybe it's an engineer, maybe it's a marketing genius, but it does not have the brakes, doesn't pay attention to the details. Many, many startups run out of cash prematurely, or they start being successful, then Somebody steals their money. I've seen this so many times that the accountants steal. Why? Because there is no system, no control, nothing. The whole thing is a mess. And a hole in the, in the fence calls for a thief. So you need a complementary team. I tell all the startups, where is your complementary team? Israel has done a very interesting thing. They have, they have incubators. Mm-hmm. So the startup genius comes to the incubator and says, I want to be in the incubator. I say, fine. What we are going to give you is a marketing manager who is going to serve you from the incubator and will give you a good accountant to manage your finances from the incubator. You just go and focus on your technology, you know. And now it's successful because we put him in a successful environment where he can succeed. So, otherwise, the startups will fail. And as an investor, when you're looking at... of startups fail. As an investor, when you're looking at startups, should the investor focus more on the team that the, the founder brings in? Is that what you, you, you take from your research and, and your analysis of, of why startups fail? Right. They, don't, they don't pay attention to the managerial process. Investors are usually looking at the return on investment. They look at numbers. Look at the size of the market. They look at you know what percentage of the market will you have, what barriers to entry there are, who are the, what are the competitors doing and how different is your value added? They look at the outside, and I'm telling you the success is inside. Who are the people there? What do you know? Do you have a complementary team? Or do you have a car with a very good steering wheel but no brakes? Mm. It's going to hit the wall. Okay, well, thanks for joining us on the program. Sure, thank you. Now, Dr. Deezus will be participating in, in one-day events via video in Sydney on May 28 and Melbourne on May 30 and Brisbane now on June 4. The website you should go to for all the details is www.adizes.com.au. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. 
So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? Our next guest is Nishant Shah. He's the CEO of Supple. Uh, Nishant, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Paul, for having me. Let's start by talking, telling us a little about Supple. It's a, it's a advertising and a tech, uh, a tech-based business in, in co-founded in Melbourne, involved in SEO. So maybe you can explain what you do and also what the term SEO means. Uh, well, Paul, uh, what we do is basically, in in a very short uh, sentence, is like online marketing. Um, any businesses nowadays on having a website needs to be found on Google. And hence, the search engine optimization, which is a full form of SEO, comes from there. Um, and basically, that's uh, that's how basically you will be found on the first page of Google. That's what SEO really means. And so companies, uh, look, essentially, you work with companies to help them make sure that they're, if someone clicks on, puts a word into Google, that they come up at the top of the page. Is that what sort of you're aimed to try to help with? Yeah, that's right. So when people search online with natural um, information, they're looking for like if you're doing a re- like if you're looking for a restaurant, if you're looking for a plumber, they would search for a particular service in an area. And then obviously our job is to rank the businesses in front of the customers when they're searching for relevant words. And that's how the there's there's an algorithm which is there on Google. We work with that. We work with Google, and then obviously rank you better than other competitors. And that's called organic. Uh, also, the natural way of coming on the first page of Google. And, and sometimes when you look go to Google, some of those words are you see sort of paid advertisements. Is that what they are? Is that the sort of paid adwords? Or just explain to the yeah, listeners correct. how basically, that all works. So basically, what happens is on Google, there's obviously a couple of ways to be found on the first page. One is adwords, and the second is organic, which is SEO. Mm-hmm. Adwords basically is also classified as pay per click, which is PPC. Um, in in terms of uh, it actually is very naturally understandable that once people once people pay for it uh, you will come up on the first page with adwords and once the budget is finished for a day say your budget is six dollars a day each keyword or each key phrase which you're looking for once searched um, once been uh, clicked on gets you Google charges that money and then you disappear after the after the budget is finished and then somebody else will come up on the first page or first three spots on the on the Google ads. And hence, that's why it's good, it's quick, but it's very expensive. And the other way is the organic, which is long-term. Uh, it takes time to crawl up there, but it's actually more natural. And 90% of people, users, would be inclined to click on an organic search because people feel it's safe. It's a result you have searched for. And hence, you know, there's always goods and bad about AdWords versus SEO, but, you know, always SEO wins in the longer term. And what are sort of some of the things businesses do with their website Sorry. to make sure that uh, they're coming up higher on the page, on the, on the Google page? Well, uh, basically what happens is in, in organically, um, it's basically we have to have a, a, you know, a website which actually helps um, uh, the optimization. The words are being embedded. We, have, we provide content, so we have to have relevant content on the website. There's different landing pages. Uh, which means that if you're talking about you know, a particular service, a particular area, we will put that on the on the website. And obviously, uh, we have a lot of information going on the backlinks, which is basically writing blogs and articles about a particular website, and which is how Google really uh, positions your website um, better than others if you have good backlinks, because at the end of the day, people would choose a company who has, you know, obviously better results and that's why it's important to get the results on the first page and having bad, good backlinks, good content on the website, user-friendly website, all that helps to get a conversion. 
And how important do things like um, business reviews and, uh, and comments that people leave about your services on a website? Um, reviews have been, you know, it's online reviews are the new word of mouth, uh, and we trust them. And basically, Google nowadays uh, is the most prominent because everybody is on Google right nowadays. So it's important to have a Google review, positive reviews, and pe- because they make a decision based on different reviews you have uh, nowadays because pe- there's a lot of competition, and it's important to have a good review. Um, and are there any um, tips you can offer there in terms of how you get a, a good business review? Yes, of course. So basically, uh, we have actually generated a, a special tool called Google Review Generator. Uh, it actually helps uh, uh, people to uh, remove the inform- remove a lot of uh, inf- information which helps directly to go to the Google Review page. Uh, it, this review tool actually can help you to go to the Google, uh, search your business name on a website, and actually helps you to get the whole link which will which you can send it to the customers and they can actually help to put the google review directly on your website which is important nowadays a lot of people don't know where to review mm-hmm. um and that's why this review tool is very important uh, and it's actually getting more fo- famous uh, because a lot of people are on google already if they see a google review it helps uh, building the relationship with the new business and does google use that information in, in their search algorithm is that what they sort of do with the or, or is there are the reviews it, yes. separate Reviews are supposed to be separate, but there's a gray area because we, we have a lot of R&D and, and a, lot of inform- a lot of customers we've worked in the last seven years. We have seen uh, there has been an uh, improvement in the results when you have a lot of good reviews. Um, so it, it indirectly helps the rankings of Google organically as well. Right. And in terms of uh, positive. SEO and, and business reviews, I mean, practically what type of company um, should be thinking about doing this? I mean, obviously to... You know, engage a company like yours is a, is, is is a cost, but obviously delivers benefits. I mean, what type of, you know, how small a business really needs to start thinking about um, SEO and business reviews and other things to improve their digital marketing? Well, a uh, very important part is Google reviews is actually very free, and our 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 uh, review tool is absolutely zero zero cost. So any small business. Uh, to big large business can use them for no cost. That's the beauty about you know the Google reviews and the, the tool we have generated. Mm-hmm. So it's very effective uh, and it gets you a lot of good reviews and you know it can, it's a zero it's a zero dollar marketing and you can get a lot of customers because of that. So so review is absolutely no cost and it's important for any businesses to be honest if they have a website because a lot of them depend uh, on Google on online. So it's important to have that reviews sorted. With search engine optimization, obviously, uh, from small to medium business who are new or who have a presence, but you know, obviously, they need uh, good customers, new customers ongoing. Uh, search engine optimization uh, can be important for them, and sometimes people don't know how how it can work or how it can help, and it's not as expensive as people can think. So, it's important to have a consultation with the right company, and they can obviously give you the ins and out of it. But as I said, search engine optimization is one thing, and Google reviews is other, and Google reviews is absolutely free. Okay, tell me a little bit about uh, Supple because you've uh, been going since 2012. I think you've been a, a finalist in the, or you've been in the AFR Fast 100. Uh, you're in the Deloitte Tech Fast 50, and you're a finalist, I think, in the Optus My Business Awards 2017. So some growth. So tell me a little about uh, how Supple started and just how you've been able to manage this sort of growth. 
Well, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's been a long time. Obviously, it's seven years now. So we have started from, obviously, in a garage we, with a couple of uh, me and my other part, business partner. We obviously started very small. We, the whole idea and the aim was to go out there in the market and, and, and just understand uh, what can do to the other businesses to help them to grow in the digital space, uh, as there's a lot of companies out there. And just to get, break it down simply to, to the business owners um, and meet them face-to-face, um, and help them to, you know, get the results there, and which has helped us um, to get results ongoing. And the success has obviously it's all the hard work from our team. We've dedicated uh, project managers in every team, which speaks to the customers on every regular intervals to get them results and see what has happened in the last three to four months, which brings them, uh, you know, which brings them to notice that there, there is a significant improvement. If there's any problems, we we take attention to it and fix it. And obviously, we have a uh, we have grown into uh, different cities in Sydney as well. So we've started an office in Sydney, um, and obviously, it's helping us to grow in the market. Well, look, thank you very much, uh, Nishant, uh, for for joining us on Switzerland. I mean, I think there's a, a great success story with your own company um, in in, in Supple, but also I think the importance for small and medium businesses about SEO, and as you say, the uh, you know, the, 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 the Google um, reviews are free, and if, uh, if you're a small business, you're the plumber in DY or Fitzroy or wherever it is, you'd be thinking crazy not at least to try to take advantage of some of that technology that's being offered in a way to uh, improve your own sort of ranking and at least appearance in terms of uh, how you come across online. It's such an important part of all businesses. So, Nishant, thank you for joining thank us you. on Switzer. Thank you much for all for your time. Thank you for having me. That was Nishan Shah, the CEO of Supple, a Melbourne-based tech company. And that takes us out for this week. Peter will be back in full next week. Thanks for joining us. Britain time! Britain time!